Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Suspense is on stage at Theatrical Outfit in a work by the acclaimed playwright Ike Holter. We'll hear from the director and lead actor in the neo-noir production of The Wolf at the End of the Block. Plus... Our series of local musicians in their own words. Speaking of music, today features Abby Wren of Wren and the Ravens. First... From 1974 to 1983, millions of viewers around the world tuned in each week to watch the iconic television show Little House on the Prairie. The show gave viewers a peek into rural life in the late 19th century. The TV series followed the adventures of the Ingalls family, which was based on Laura Ingalls Wilder's classic children's books. The wildly popular program lasted nine seasons and inspired three movies. One notable character in the show was Nellie Olson, played by actor Alison Arngren. Nellie was the pretentious, snotty girl who played the frenemy to Laura Ingalls. Portraying this character for nearly a decade inspired Allison to write a memoir about her adventures on set, and now a one-woman show to be performed in Atlanta at Outfront Theater. Okay, the title of this show includes a word some listeners might find offensive, so I'll say it now and just once more at the end. Alison Arngren's show is titled Confessions of a Prairie Bitch. Alison, welcome to City Lights. Thank you. Yes, it's the title of my book. So um, I, people wind up having to say it a lot uh, because, <laughs> yes, my autobiography, Confessions of a Prairie Bitch, How I Survived Nellie Olson and Learned to Love Being Hated, um, yes, which came out in 2010. Yes, that is certainly essential to the show and to some of what I hope we'll talk about Little House was set in the late 1800s. The series was filmed in the 1970s and 80s. Did you feel transported to the 19th century while you were filming the show? Surprisingly, we did. I think it was because we had such elaborate costumes. Um, also, you know, in my case, I was really in a full drag. I had to wear a wig. Uh, 
the character of Nellie Olson was famous for her lovely, beautiful curls. And of course, my hair does not curl at all. Uh, so they tried curling my hair for the first couple of months of the show and finally had to get a wig. So I came in at, you know, four in the morning and was done up in the petticoats and the dress and the wig and the whole get up every day for nine hours. So when you're in those clothes in the petticoats especially out on location you know when we were filming the interior scenes at paramount sure we were in the 70s we had a commissary we're on the loss <laughs> but uh when you'd go out to simi valley to big sky ranch where we did the exteriors or when we went on location to arizona or northern california well you were cut off from everything i mean this is pre-cell phones but you know there's barely cell phone service out there now <laughs> the radios and the TVs in the dressing rooms, it didn't work. <laughs> the nearest phone, you had to drive a mile down the road to a house. So you were actually cut off from everything from the 70s out in this beautiful area like a nature park with these 1800s buildings in the costumes all day long. And there were times where we said, okay, well, this is this is pretty realistic. This is This is making it really easy to believe we're doing this. <laughs> Well, for those who haven't seen the show, would you describe the relationship of your character, Nellie, with Laura Ingalls? Well, when Laura Ingalls Wilder wrote the books that the show's based on, the Little House books, she actually changed a bunch of names. And apparently there were three different girls who were her nemesis in school. Uh, there was a girl named Nellie Owens, the real Nellie Owens in Walnut Grove, Minnesota. And then later a girl named Stella and a girl named Genevieve in Desmet. And she just combined them into one person and called her Nellie Olson. And so in the books, Nellie Olson is this impossibly perfect, impossibly blonde, beautiful girl in school who absolutely hates her. And she's only in a few chapters in the books, but even then, in the 30s, Laura Ingalls was getting requests for more Nellie, more Nellie. And so they had to bring her back in her teens in Little Town on the Prairie. So in the show, Michael Landon quite rightly said, OK, this is this is the relationship we need to expand on. So we had the whole mercantile and the rich family versus the poor family. So the Olsons run the store. It's the only store in town. They have a monopoly. <laughs> and Mrs. Olson is awful and is constantly hassling poor Mrs. Ingalls, Laura's mother, about the price of eggs. And Nellie is the, you know, the girl who runs the school. She's the girl who has the clique and is it's everyone knew this girl in junior high. Everyone had this horrible girl mm -hmm. who was just impossible in junior high, drove you crazy. And that's who Nellie is. It's all these archetypes. Everyone has a Mrs. Olson at work. Everyone has a Nellie at their school, so people can really identify. So Laura and Nellie uh, were just constantly pitted against each other. I believe that Nellie was jealous because when you watch a show, Laura has this perfect family and these loving, wonderful parents and this beautiful sister and a cute baby sister. And I have this battle axe of a mother and a stupid henchman younger brother and, and my father who doesn't stop any of them. So it's like, of course I'm angry. Um, so, yes, I was the beautifully dressed, petticoated, ruffle, puff-sleeved, ringleted, bowed, perfect. Well, you know, what you're describing really is at the heart of the behavior of bullies. I mean, it is often oh, a yeah, matter yeah. of jealousy and a feeling of inadequacy. It doesn't stop the kid who's being bullied from feeling terrible and being hurt, but you summed it up well. I know that you and Melissa Gilbert, the actor who portrayed Laura Ingalls, are actually great friends in real life. What was it like as you were kids playing her arch nemesis when you were Claire's? Right. I mean, that's the thing. On TV, when you play mortal enemies, I think that does sort of lend itself to becoming lifelong friends. You get all your hostilities out. It's like couples I've seen who played husband and wife on shows. You either adore each other or hate each other. And in our case, here we were, these very, very Hollywood children. I was 12, 10, little girls. And 
We'd both been raised in the business, and both Melissa Gilbert and I came from Hollywood families. My whole family were in show business. Her whole family was in show business. Her father was Paul Gilbert, the actor. Her grandfather was Harry Crane, who helped create The Honeymooners. So we came from these show business families, and we bonded right away. We hit it off. And here we were playing enemies and literally rolling around in the dirt and the mud and hitting each other. And... We thought this was hilarious. We would beat each other up all day and then go out for Slurpees after work and have slumber parties at each other's house <laughs> on the weekends. And it was, it was hilarious because we'd go places and people would recognize us. We were in a supermarket and someone recognized Melissa and they saw that I was in the store. I was over in the next aisle and they said, she's here in the store. They were going to protect her from me. Oh, they so were frightened for her. It was so, and it's still going, it's still going on. I was at a party at Melissa's just a few years ago and a gr grown people and a grown woman said, it's so nice to see you two getting along. Oh. And Melissa said, oh, I'm sorry, was there some tabloid article that we had a fight with? <laughs> what are you referring to? And we're going around in circles, and she says, well, you know, you know, when you were younger, and there's this terrible long pause, and finally Melissa says, oh, my God, you mean on the show? Wait, no, you thought that was your, you're, you're a grown person. You work at Paramount. Wait, what are you talking about? And and she, this woman had believed it was real for, I guess, 40 years, and we had to, to break it to her that, that it wasn't real. Was it? So you actually continued to meet fans who thought your personality was similar to Nellie's. It's so crazy, but I have to take it as the greatest compliment in, in the world. I had a woman at an autograph show. I was signing autographs. Usually people come up, they're thrilled to see me and everyone from Little House. Oh, fabulous. Yes, let me get a book. Let me get a photo. They're all very happy. Our, we have really dedicated Little House fans. It's really kind of cool. But this woman walks up and she is in a rage. Smoke is coming out of her ears. She just stares at me, not hello, not good morning, and says... I forgive you and walks out. Oh, my now, my husband goodness. thought this was a riot. He said, okay, was that for everything? Was that just for Little House? Or have you just been absolved for like everything in your life? But wouldn't that be great? I mean, who gets absolved at, you know, the L.A. County <laughs> Fair signing autographs? It's a pretty good trick. But, yeah, there are people who have been holding it in for, for, for years at a time. Um, it's amazing. I mean, even now. I'm, I'm 60 years old, for heaven's sake. I'm 60 years old, and people still, when they meet my friends or my husband, they will ask them, well, what's she like? There are people who are still afraid to meet me because of what I did when I was 12, 13, 14 years old. Well, then I guess that is a compliment about very effective acting and writing. What? Well, exactly. Well, do, doesn't every actor say, I want to completely submerge myself in this character. I want the audience to suspend disbelief and not even see the actor, not say great performance, but say, wow, I really believe that was a real person. Everyone says that. But then when it happens, what, what do you do? <laughs> I think good actors say that. I think movie stars would rather still retain their off-screen identity, even with the on-screen appearance. I think well, that... don't you always hear from actors say, oh, I don't want to play someone unlikable. I don't want to be unlikable. And I thought, well, you know, Anthony Hopkins didn't get very concerned about that when he was Hannibal <laughs> Lecter. Um, he didn't go for likable. I d was not concerned about being likable. I didn't let that get in my way. And the funny thing is, years later, people say, Oh, but I loved her. I, I loved to hate her. And uh, there was something weirdly sympathetic. We kind of knew that she was troubled in some way. And so I threw likability out the window and said, hell, likability. Or as I say, any idiot can be liked. It takes talent to scare the crap out of people. Uh. Um, I just went with the role. And I now have people say, oh, I liked her. No, I loved Nellie Olsen. It was great. So I always tell actors, don't hamstring yourself by saying, but is the character likable? Just just go for it and worry about if they like you later. Mm. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzis. My guest is the former Little House on the Prairie child star Alison Arngren. Her one-woman show is coming to Outfront Theatre Company on April 16th. So Little House ended nearly 40 years ago. 
you went on to star in shows such as Fantasy Island and The Love Boat. Did you feel typecast in your TV work after you left Little House? I, I have to say, I definitely was. There was really a typecasting. We all fought it to some extent from the show. It definitely was a thing. I mean, uh, Melissa Gilbert did, oh gosh, something like 40 Lifetime movies as various women in peril in the modern age. And to this day, people call her Half Pint and mm. talk about Laura. So you're, you're kind of doomed either way. The funniest, though, is not just being typecast as a villain, which which I don't mind. I played several really objectionable people and enjoyed it. Um, my agent called someone in the 80s about a part. He said, oh, she's perfect. And they said, oh, no, this takes place in present day. And he said, she's not pioneer Barbie. She doesn't come with the outfit. What, what? Um, so there absolutely it was it was people sort of saw as if it was real, as if we all lived in the 1800s. It was very weird. I have played a lot of awful people and uh, well, <laughs> villains, and I like those roles. They, they're fun. They're fun. There's so much to do. I've, I've been a few nice people. I've been allowed to be nice occasionally. <laughs> um, I do a lot of theater. They let me be nice on stage, apparently. Uh, but, um, I, I also get to be dreadful, and I do kind of enjoy that. You also were in a number of films, and I read that you worked and continued to perform in France. Yeah. How did that come about? I started doing stand-up comedy when I was like 15, Laugh Factory, Comedy Store, all those places. And so I was doing stand-up. I'd always done that. And then I'd always done theater. My first play was, I guess, 13 at the Garden Theater Festival. We did uh, Cry of Players, Shakespeare's Daughter as a kid. And so I always done that. So after Little House, I did theater and I did stand up and I did you know, the, the various TV things. And then over the years, I started doing more and more of the stand up and different things. And in around 2002, I created a one woman show, Confessions of a Prairie. Bitch, yeah. And uh, <laughs> I was doing this in New York and different places, Laurie Beachman Theater. And I went to France to be on a talk show and I got there and found out they are absolutely obsessed with Little House on the Prairie. La Petite Maison dans la Prairie est très, très, très populaire en France. Oui. And uh, they're just gaga for the prairie and they love Nellie Olsen. And I didn't realize this. I thought, oh yeah, they watch a show. I get fan mail from there. I got there and said, whoa. I, I walked onto the set of the talk show and the studio audience starts singing the theme song there oh. are no words to the theme song, <laughs> to Little House. This did not, la, 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 la. Like, okay. So when I realized how strong this, I said, well, I got, I, I got to come back here. And then I met this guy, uh, this crazy writer, Patrick Lubatia. And he said, we could do your show in French. I said, really? He said, well, it would be difficult. He said, it's a major rewrite. He said, obviously, you have jokes that don't make any sense in French. They're totally American about American things and things that just won't translate. But there's stuff that does. And with the thing with the little video clips and pictures you use, you've come to France enough times. You have stories about wacky French celebrities. We can sort of do a French adaptation and put the whole thing in French and do French stories. And we can kind of make a thing out of it. Now, I barely spoke French at this time. So we came up with thing. He came out and spoke and introduced me. Then I spoke. Then we showed a video clip. Then he spoke. Then I spoke. Then we spoke together. Then more clips. Kind of padded it out. He'd never been on stage. He'd, he'd written, but he'd never been in a play. And then I had didn't really speak French. So we made an interesting couple to do a theatrical piece in French. So I was like, okay, this how is this like the producers here? <laughs> and people loved it. So I went back to school. I went back to school, uh, Alliance de Francaise in Pasadena, and I took French courses, and he figured out how to be on stage and not bump into the furniture. And we now have a long-running thing, Confession d'une gasse de la Prairie. And then he wrote a second show called Le Mal au Trésor de Nelly Olson, Nelly Olson's Trunk of Treasures. And he's now working on a third show, which we need to try to get into rehearsals for this summer. Um, so I have a whole other thing. I wound up doing a movie in France. I did a movie called Le Deal with uh, Jean-Pierre Mocky, uh, a famous French director. So, uh, yeah, I have this whole other, like, second life in France. <laughs> there are bizarre. worse places to have a second life, Alice. Right. 
I got to run off for a month and a half. I'll be back. Oh, where will you be? Oh, Paris. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, yeah, it's really fun. And people in France love Little House on the Prairie very, very much. They really are into it because it's such an emotional show. They really get that. It's like, oh, Charles, he cries. He cries. It's so beautiful. Um, they love it. They love that Nellie Olson is a little bit bad. They think it's cool. I think they're cool. I enjoy escargot and chocolate mousse. Um, we all get along. <laughs> So they somehow get me, I get them, we have a great time. We go to small towns where they don't really get a lot of American celebrities. And as we say, it's l'esprit de la vraie Walnut Grove, the spirit of the real Walnut Grove, the small towns. And so they go wild for this stuff that there's a little house in the prairie themed comedy show. Um, so I have that in France. And then I have the American show, which I'm doing uh, in Atlanta and then in uh, New York. And then I, I do all sorts of things. I, I do the theater. I do uh, independent films. I, I got a film out called Even in Dreams. Oh, I'm really terrible in that. I'm a band manager and I'm evil and manipulative and almost ruin this poor girl's life. I'm awful. I'm just awful. You'll hate me. It's great. It's called <laughs> Even in Dreams. Um, <laughs> I always like to say, I'm giving you the opportunity to hate me again. Um, it's a really cute film. It's a really nice family film, but I'm really evil. And then I, I do the prairie things. I go out to Walnut Grove, to Smet, South Dakota, Mansfield, Missouri, the, the historical Laura Ingalls sites. And they'll have events where fans of the show and the books get together and they fly in various people from Little House on the Prairie. This weekend, uh, Pat Laberto, who was Andy Garvey, and Charlotte Stewart, who was Miss Beadle. We're all going to a place called Macon, Missouri for, I don't know what this is. It's something called a Spring Pickers Mart. I've been told it's really fun and they have kettle corn. So I'm I'm going. We will commune with our fans and sign autographs and it'll be awesome. And then next weekend I'll be in Atlanta up on stage telling all sorts of bizarre and crazy and rude stories and what it's like to be a crazy ex-child star in Hollywood. Yes, your memoir you wrote in 2010 some of this is serious stuff. Yeah. Well, what happened is that as I talk very openly about in the book, I was abused as a child, physical, emotional, and sexual abuse. I'm a survivor of all that. And after many years of therapy and everything else I could imagine, I realized that playing Nelly was the greatest thing that could possibly have happened to me in those circumstances. Being a child actor is very difficult. And if you actually are successful as a child actor and become famous, become a famous child actor, a child star, that's even more difficult actually, because now you have the whole pressure of fame and complete strangers knowing your life, which is weird as an adult, but really weird if you're 12. Uh, I don't, I don't know how people do it who become really, really, really famous at like eight I, I cannot imagine what that would be like. That would be terrifying. Um, I was at least a teenager and having people hate me and throw things. And so I could understand they didn't mean me. But in my case, it was such a positive thing because I had been bullied at school. I'd been abused at home. And here I played this character who was so angry that I was constantly venting my rage in scenes. And you know, when you suffer abuse as a child, you have all this anger and there's really nowhere for it to go. You didn't get to fight back or express it at the time. So you have all this unexpressed rage that you're sitting on. Here I would go to work and throw things and scream at the top of my lungs and hit people and yell and scream and, and rant and rave and bear apart the room. It was very therapeutic. It sounds and, it. It sounds like it was downright cathartic. Yeah, absolutely. My blood pressure is so low. It's lovely. And and then I was in a very good environment. The the cast and crew of Little House on the Prairie, if you had to be a child actor on a series in the 70s, this was like winning the lottery. They were really nice to us. I felt very safe and protected. I mean, there's I have friends who have horror stories about being on sets as teenage girls in the 70s. But on the set of Little House... Um, I felt very supported. I felt that everyone there genuinely liked me and was nice to me. And I felt very safe. I never felt any peril on the set. And here was this safe environment where people were encouraging me to express myself and being very nice to me. And then I was being allowed to yell and scream. And I thought, well, this is pretty good. And I got a lot out. It was a great relief. And then when I was older, you know, I was able to go to therapy and get my life together. I have to admit that during the worst part of my life, my, the teen years, when 
everything that happened to you as a child just comes bubbling up and you're suffering, you know, basically being a teenager and having hormones and people telling you what to do all day. It was the greatest thing that could have happened. To have that outlet was just fantastic. So when it all sorted out, I realized, well, I can put all of this together and make a life. And with the typecasting, it was weird. It's like, okay, everyone thinks I'm this villain, which is kind of great because then people are afraid of me. <laughs> can be useful. Yes, everyone keeps coming out to me every single day and asking about Little House in the Prairie and Ellie Olson. What if I said, okay, fine. What if I put that in the stand-up act? What if I did a one-woman show about what it's like? to be an ex-child star, to be Nellie Olson if people hate you? What, what if I wrote a whole book about everything and just told the truth about absolutely every single thing? What if I just went ahead and did that? And I did, and frankly, it was quite the resounding success. I, I actually made the New York Times bestseller list. I saw. I was, I was very amazed. It was great. Well, I know that your stand-up show will reveal a lot of juicy secrets. Without spoilers, are there any stories you could share with our listeners now? My whole upbringing was bananas. You know, my father was a, a talent manager in Hollywood, so my father was assigned to Liberace. My father managed Liberace. Oh, my. On top of this, my mother did cartoon voices. My mother was the voice of Casper the Friendly Ghost. She was the voice of Gumby. She was Sweet Polly Purebred, Underdog's girlfriend, and Davy of Davy and Goliath. Mm. So how bizarre is this? Dad's hanging out with Liberace, and Mom is a talking green ball of clay. So already everything was completely bizarre and off-kilter. And then I get Nellie Olson, and I'm hated to the point that I was pelted with garbage during the Santa Claus Lane Hollywood Christmas Parade. Aww. I got an orange soda right to the face. How did you deal with that? Well, I mean, okay, first of all, I was like relieved it wasn't a beer bottle. There, yeah, that's true. Someone saw me and, again, so instantly overcome with emotion and anger just the sight of me that they threw their whole drink at my head. And that's when I said, damn, I must be good. Alison Arngren, the former child star who portrayed Nellie Olson in Little House on the Prairie. She'll perform her one-woman show, Confessions of a Prairie Bitch, at Outfront Theatre Company, April 16th, at Saturday at 8 p.m. More information will be on our website, wabe.org. In a moment... Theatrical Outfits production of The Wolf at the End of the Block. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. In Ike Holter's The Wolf at the End of the Block, we're transported to a fictional Chicago neighborhood riled up by a late-night attack on one of its residents. The modern-day neo-noir play looks at the realities of Chicagoans' mistrust of the police. The Atlanta premiere of this play is on stage now at Theatrical Outfit through April 24th. 
The play's director at Die Moon joins us now via Zoom with actor Erica Miranda. Welcome to City Lights. Oh, thank you, Lois. It's great to be back. Thank you so much. Can you give us a synopsis of the play without spoilers, if it's possible? Oh, yeah, this is a hard one to do without spoilers, but this is what I've been thinking about uh, in relation to it. I, it's about a young man. Well, the, the main character is a young man named Abe who gets into an altercation at a bar. And the majority of the play is us as the audience trying to figure out the details of what happened during this altercation at a bar. We find out that, you know, there are a lot of different perspectives on what happened. And so hopefully the audience is going going along on this journey to find some sense of what the actual truth is about this incident. And in the interim, we also learn a lot about this young man, his personal struggles. He just lost two of his parents. He's been taking care of his sister and his very close friend Nunley is, you know, helping him, you know, stay afloat by giving him a job. I, I think the play is asking the the audience to try to step into this, this young man's shoes to see all these things that he's dealing with and then figure out whether or not we want to side with him in his particular perspective on what happened during this bar incident. Erica, you play the role of Miranda. How would you describe your character? I I think Miranda, first and foremost, is just a ball of fire. There's a lot of energy and passion that she has. And I think her quest in some of this play is figuring out where to put that energy and where to put all that passion. And I think that passion is made up of love and anger and frustration of her own circumstances and what she sees around her. So she just is, is, is a bit of a ping pong ball. <laughs> She's a reporter, correct? She begins as an inspiring reporter, um, <laughs> but if you ask me by the end, I think she very much deserves her place among other reporters who might be a little bit more professional. <laughs> okay. Uh, how does Wolf continue the saga of I called her's previous plays, Sender and Prowess? Ike has a seven-play series called The Rightland Saga. In all those plays, they take place in this uh, fictional 51st Ward in, in Chicago. And all the plays use and explore uh, genre, in particular, you know, noir and mystery, to really unpack social issues that happen or are happening in metropolises across the country, but in Chicago in particular. And I think Prowess was sort of about, you know, vigilanteism and, and Cinder was about uh, another character sort of in search of his goals and, and his mission and what he wanted to do with his life. And I, I think this play is a continuation of Ike using, you know, very specific genre to try to unpack and to show the complexities of, you know, both social and political issues that affect most people living in major cities. Learning that Ike Holder has written several plays set in Chicago with Wolf being part of the seven-part cycle you mentioned, the Reitland saga, I thought about August Wilson's century plays, 10 plays set in the decades of the 20th century, most in the same neighborhood of Pittsburgh. And then I thought about Dominique Morisot, who has set her plays in her hometown with the Detroit trilogy, with Ike setting his saga in Chicago and thinking about these other stellar playwrights, August Wilson, legendary playwright, who've opted to focus on their own communities, rather than New York, L.A., an unnamed metropolis. You know, Americans are just accustomed to, to New York and L.A. being the settings for so much of our entertainment. How do these playwrights transcend 
the location of their stories and why I continues to focus his saga on Chicago. You know, I think there's something to be said about specificity as it relates to, to universality. I think because, you know, because Ike, because, because August, because Dominique have all set their plays within a very specific city that has a very specific rhythm, uh, has a very specific history. It allows them to really, really grind in and to, to dig in to the nuances of the individuals in those cities. And by digging into those nuances, I think they're able to communicate, you know, stories and ideas that resonate, you know, with all of us, no matter where we live. And also in addition to that, as a person who's also a playwright and a person who's in new play development, I would really love for all the amazing, you know, amazingly talented playwrights living and working in Atlanta to really think about, you know, how the specificity of a place and a location can add depth and range to their work as well. Oh, that's great. If you are just tuning in, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes speaking with director Adai Moon and actor Erica Miranda. Their production of The Wolf at the End of the Block is on stage now at theatrical outfit. The playwright says his work is always driven by the directive to write what he wants to see. Real life situations and issues that affect real lives. (laughs) Erica, you may want to answer this as well. What is the role of the media in this story? That is a huge question and a really important one. From my perspective as an actor playing Miranda, my character learns a lot about what it's like to be a a brown person trying to be someone who raises awareness and brings justice to causes that are really close to home and are often painful. And she kind of learns in this play that it's not as easy and the truth is not as always as simple as she hopes it to be because the reality of the situation is the more painful and the more complicated these situations can be of of injustice and and harm you have to get people on board who don't think like you who don't look like you who don't maybe act like you and in order to do that she finds um, that the media really asks her to 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 bend things in ways that she doesn't necessarily want to, if that makes sense. <laughs> a die? Yeah, you know, I, I think what Erica said is spot on. And, and also one of the things that I love about the play is that it really, it really, you know, explores how, how narratives are shaped and how uh, the stories, you know, that there's a big difference between facts and truth. And I think, you know, truth is very subjective. And a lot of the times when we hear stories or hear narratives, you know, whether it's from the media, whether it's from the arts, um, a lot of times, you know, it, it is the people who are in power who have the power to shape those narratives. And so when it comes to looking at these narratives and deciding whether or not they're true, things become really, really tricky. And I think what the play does is really challenge us to think about how our own gaze and our own perspectives uh, shape our idea of what's true and what isn't true, but also how power also dictates, you know, the stories that we have access to. Adai, you are associate artistic director, as we mentioned in the intro. How has this play been a good fit for your directorial debut with the outfit. Well, you know, the the thing that excited me about the position before I even applied to it, when, when Matt Torney came on as the artistic director, is that, you know, Matt is very much committed to telling stories that represent 
the diversity of the city that we live in. And even though this play is set in Chicago, uh, it's been a joy to see this amazingly diverse cast of actors, some of whom, you know, the Atlanta theater going audience hasn't seen on stage. And, and so I'm hoping that, you know, with this show, we get an opportunity at TO to tell a more diverse range of narratives that reflect the complexities and diversities of the city that we live in. The show premiered in 2017 in Chicago. Sadly, still feels very topical. What themes in the play are still relevant in today's socio-political climate? Mm, I, I would definitely say, uh, and, and, and this has been relevant, this will probably, you know, r remain relevant, you know, the power of the media to shape the stories that we see. I, I think it was relevant when the play premiered, and I think it's even more relevant now. And I also think too, you know, this idea of empathy especially when it relates to understanding people of different racial and cultural backgrounds. And the fact that we still have a challenge, you know, as individuals and collectively as a nation, you know, being able to step into another person's shoes and understand their life and their perspective. I wondered about the role of police, given yeah. the past five years. <laughs> Per perceptions of the police and differing perceptions of police and their role. I mean, Chicago has not had a pretty history here. No, they haven't. They haven't. And the character James, who, who is a, a police officer, you know, he's technically in one scene of the play, but what he says about the nature of his job from his perspective to me is extremely profound, especially as, you know, a country that continues to, do, to deal with the challenges and problems of policing in America. Uh, and, and one of those challenges and problems is that we don't, we don't really think about the history of policing in this country. And so now the play doesn't go there, but, but, it, but, it, but it does, you know, give us a chance to kind of like peek behind the, the mystery that police officers have to deal with when they encounter individuals who are different than they are. And I think, you know, p policing will always be a struggle for us in this country until we start really reckoning with the complicated history of policing in America. How does Theatrical Outfits production showcase the aesthetic and feeling of neo-noir? Oh, I mean, we, we had just an amazing, <laughs> an amazing uh, group of, you know, designers from day one in our pre-productions meetings leaned into the style, you know, leaned into, you know, the impact of like music and modernism and, 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 and jazz and Chicago hip hop and, and, you know, the use of shadows and textures. The designers did, I, I think, a phenomenal job of sort of cap capturing those sort of elements, you know, to a genre that is primarily cinematic. What they did also adds to, I think, the tension and the heightened aspects of the story itself. The plays build as fast-paced and sort of like a jigsaw puzzle. Does the story end in a way that left up to each person's interpretation of what happened? Or is there a clear cut, this is who did it in the end? I'm gonna let Erica answer that. <laughs> <laughs> She's on stage saying those words. <laughs> Not fair. <laughs> um, no, no, I think, I mean, I think Ike has really blessed us with this, this I mean, one of my favorite ways to experience theater is to just be inundated with questions so you can walk away with your own conversation, you know, with, um, and, and so he does that. I'll, I'll say, I'll say that there, there's quite a lot of question marks at the end and not a lot of answers. <laughs> Director Adai Moon and actor Erica Miranda in the Atlanta premiere of The Wolf at the End of the Block. 
on stage at Theatrical Outfit through April 24th. You can find out more about this neo-noir thriller on our website, wabe.org. Coming up, our series of local musicians in their own words, speaking of music. Today, featuring Abby Wren of Wren and the Ravens, Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for joining me. It's time now for our segment, Speaking of Music, where we get to hear from Atlanta musicians in their own words. Hi, my name is Abby Wren, and my band is called Wren and the Ravens. I would describe it as kind of like ambient soul and pop, elements of pop. We've been kind of compared to Portishead before, or even Lake Street Dive. I've heard Adele before, which is always funny. So we went to the edge of the water To see what we could see You were holding my hand In the sunset you and me I started singing when I was really, really young. Um, I would say technically kindergarten, when I started chorus and I continued chorus throughout all the way to high school with the same chorus teacher, which is pretty rare. But she helped me a lot and really um, took time with me, which was a huge, huge help. And also in church, um, that was the whole reason that I went, honestly. That was my favorite part of it, I will say. I also liked watching people around me sing. I remember being a kid in church and just kind of looking around to see who was singing and how they sang, and it just was, I don't know. I knew I had something that was inside me that I needed to explore, and it was definitely a music bug. On the Ground is a song that was written from a personal experience of mine, and it was about, you know, having to get my feet back on the ground after a hard fall. And we all know what that feels like. If you don't know, then one day you will, and I hope that you get your feet back on the ground as well, because there's nothing that builds more strength than getting your bearings back and getting your power back from overcoming something that's really tough, and that's just life. But I could not stop myself and oh I've been down there on so many times before I don't want to get sucked back in and I told you just to wait for me cause I don't want nobody else no I am motivated and inspired um, by love and relationships, a lot of perseverance and overcoming adversities. I'm inspired by nature, traveling. Those are the main things that really inspire me to write and get me excited about creating new music. And I Variety Playhouse. It's probably my favorite venue to listen to artists. I love that it's it feels so intimate, even though it's pretty large, but it's not too large, you know? 
it's just right for me. I always leave there feeling super excited and invigorated because even though I've, you know, I like to be able to stand where I want to, too. I don't like, you know, going places where there are assigned seats. Somehow it just annoys me. So variety place, I just feel very like home there. And Eddie's Attic is awesome, too. It's a whole different experience, but I enjoy being able to have to be quiet. You have to listen and it's really calming because in everyday life, everything's so chaotic, you know? And so it's pretty cool. Wake me up and shake me out. Find my face stuck in the clouds. Oh, and I think we know. You and me, we got a special thing. Let's do it all. I think we know is a song that was inspired by a good friend of mine who was in the beginning of a relationship and I think about a month or a month and a half into the relationship, he had a trip planned to Africa. So he was gonna be gone for like 30 days or 25 days or something. And so they had to be patient, you know, and they still didn't know if it was like, where's this going? And I really am missing this person and that whole thing that we've all experienced before. And he actually had enough cell service to give her a call from the top of Mount Kilimanjaro and I happened to be there. And her face lit up and she was so excited. And when they got off the phone, I asked her, I was like, how, you know, is this, is this going to be something? And she's like, I think we know. I don't know the way she said it and the way she, you know, seemed, it was inspiring to me to write, I think we know. couple of things coming up. April 23rd, we're going to be playing at the Inman Park Festival at 1 p.m. on the Freedom Stage, right before the parade comes through. April 30th is going to be Underground Atlanta at 7 p.m. We're playing at Virginia Highlands Porch Fest on May 14th. We do not have a time yet, but It'll be pretty easy to find us if you if you look on the website or any flyer or brochure that they will have. But I just, I recommend and suggest and hope that you will just check us out on, on Apple Music or Spotify or um, all the other ones. We're on all of them. So download us or stream us and just kick back and listen. And um, hopefully you will enjoy what we have created. Abby Wren and our series Speaking of Music. More information about Abby and her band Wren and the Ravens is on our website, wabe.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., a visit with the author Aisha Saeed. Her new young adult book, Omar Rising, is set in Pakistan and tells the story of a boarding school student who learns to rise up when dealing with a broken system. Plus, saxophonist Miguel Zanon speaks with us about bringing music to his native Puerto Rico ahead of his performance with the GSU Jazz Band at the Rialto. If you missed part of today's show, you can catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Troves. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram, and you can follow me on Twitter at LOIS. R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to W-A-B-E Atlanta. 
Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.